to another edition of the Dog and Duck Show. My name is Warren Maynard. I am the dog. With me, as always, is Mark. He is the duck. And uh, we're going to talk some college football, of course, uh, coming off of an overtime thriller for the Huskies against Cal, looking ahead to uh, Oregon State and the juggernaut that they have become. Oregon with uh, a convincing victory, remaining at number three in the country uh, against uh, Arizona and uh, uh, a potentially sneaky game this weekend against Stanford. So, Mark, uh, how are you doing and uh, how are you feeling about your Ducks this week? You know, Mario Cristobal has a line where he says our, our goal is to go 1-0 and each week. And so the Ducks have had four weeks now where they've gone one and oh, it hasn't always been pretty. Uh, the third quarter in particular against Arizona was not pretty, uh, but a win is a win. They came out of it four and oh, and moving on to Stanford. Well, it's a Wednesday afternoon and this is the dog and duck show. And so, you know, I think when it comes to these games, we won't spend an inordinate amount of time uh, breaking down what happened, maybe just kind of focusing on some takeaways. Uh, but as I mentioned in the opener, uh, this this was a thrilling game. I was there at the game with my wife and um, it started off for the Huskies against Cal uh, feeling pretty good. They were moving the ball um, pretty easily. Uh, going downfield, making some some dynamic passes to uh, some of the young wide receivers that we've been looking forward to seeing. Jalen McMillan uh, came back and made some good plays after a dominant um, opening game against Arkansas State. Rome Odunze finally made it onto the field and looked like the playmaker that we thought he could be. Taj Davis uh, of... Uh, Fall camp, uh, you know, stardom made a a great touchdown catch, and uh, Sean McGrew came back again as the starting running back after not even seeing the field in games one and two. Um, but probably for me, on the offensive side, the standout player of the game was a backup tight end Devin Culp, who. Uh, came in after it, it, it was revealed right before game time that Cade Otten was going to be out uh, due to some sort of COVID protocol. And um, uh, after uh, really making a, a you know, missing a very easy 41 yard touchdown catch against Arkansas State, uh, Devin Culp had the game of his life thus far against Cal. Uh, contributing for five catches and 81 yards receiving, which made him our leading receiver and uh, really did most of his damage in the first half when the Huskies were really firing on all cylinders. But as has been the case with uh, this Husky team since Jimmy Lake and John Donovan took over, once again, it was a tale of two halves. The first half, we looked great. The second half, the offense came to a grinding halt. And uh, if not for um, turning to Sean McGrew and 
the wildcat offense in overtime to score a touchdown and then a miraculous goal line stop uh, with Cam Williams knocking the ball out of the running back's hand and Ryan Bowman uh, recovering the fumble. This game could have easily been lost to uh, a scrappy Cal Bears team that has had our number over the years. Uh, so, Mark, I'm not sure how much of the game you got to catch or, or follow, but any thoughts or impressions uh, from the Husky game? Well, I think I'm more I'm more interested in kind of your impressions of seeing the game unfold. I mean, I you know being a Pac-12 network game, having other other uh, games, including the Oregon game, going on at the same time. I wasn't watching this one, but I was kind of monitoring it from afar. And you know, like you pointed out, Huskies are out. 14-point lead in the first half. They still have a 14-point lead, you know, midway through the second half. And then Cal uh, scores to make it interesting and then scores to tie the game in the final three minutes and then has a 55-yard field goal attempt to win the game on the last play. Like, as you're watching this, what was your anxiety level in terms of was, – was there a point where you're like, oh, my gosh, we're going to give this game away? Or – were you just kind of thinking, okay, we just got to settle down, make the next play, we'll, we'll get out of here? Yeah, you know, once again, it, it was one of those games where it felt like uh, offense just completely stalled and we couldn't do anything. It was just frustrating. Like we'd, we'd get into third and four and couldn't convert. And then the, the you know, the Cal offense they were converting on, it seemed like almost every third and fourth down conversion, we would stop them. They would be in third and long, or they'd be in fourth and short, and uh, they'd make the play. And on a couple of occasions, scored touchdowns on fourth downs, which is just so discouraging and backbreaking as a fan whenever, you know, the 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 crowd is trying everything that they can to you know, support the team. They're getting loud on third down. They're getting even louder on fourth down. You're, you you realize, man, if we if we can stop them here, this is a turnover, and then they convert, and then it's just like there's so much disgust yeah. felt in the stadium in that moment. And you know, that's it, it's it's so frustrating because that feels like that's been the mo for this team for the last few years, particularly in these tight games against um, kind of mid-level opponents. Like, you know, you're playing a, a, a nondescript Stanford team, a nondescript Colorado, Cal, and yet these are the teams that we seem to have these kind of breakdowns against. So, yeah, we were very nervous. And, um, I mean, really almost uh, shocked after this year that we've had that we came out with the W in the end. So can, can we spin this forward a little bit uh, this week to Oregon State? Is it too soon in the podcast to talk about that? Because this is a game that I'm really interested to talk to you about. Not at all. And in fact, you know, so you, you mentioned I was at the game. You were watching uh, the, the Oregon-Arizona game. Midway through the game, you texted me and you said, it looks like this Oregon State team might be the best team in the the North or yeah, in the Northwest. PNW. Yeah, yeah, yeah. NW. Yeah. Um, and you know, lo and behold, you, you may be right. 
Uh, although obviously Oregon is ranked number three in the nation, having beaten Ohio State, the, the fact remains that um, this Oregon State team is looking very strong right now under Jonathan Smith. Well, when I texted you that, it was, I believe your game was was going into overtime and the Oregon game, Arizona had cut it to five in the fourth quarter. And I'm checking the Oregon State score and it just seems like they're running up the score on the Trojans. And it was, it was just interesting with these three games going on at the same time and thinking like, man, the Beavers look like they have their act together. They have, uh, so they've not beaten the Huskies since 2011. Uh, 10 years, but I'm looking at them just compared to this Cal team that you just played and they have a better quarterback. Seemingly uh, chance Nolan has played as well as any quarterback in the PAC 12 since he took over uh, the, the job in the second half of the Purdue game. Uh, they have a better running back. BJ uh, Baylor is, is leading the league in rushing and, uh, they have a pretty good defense. They have a couple of the best pass rushers in the Pac-12. Mm -hmm. And it's on the road. You know, you've got to go to Corvallis. So yeah. how do you size this one up? Do you look at it as you still think if the Huskies play their game, they're, they're the better team? Or are you looking at it like the Beavers are hot and we've got to get a few breaks? Like what's, what's kind of the mentality in, in Husky Nation going into this one? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, uh, we we do need to just take note of the fact that uh, Oregon State going into uh, USC and beating them on the road is a, a very historical note. In fact, um, it's the first time that uh, Oregon State has uh, beaten uh, USC in their home stadium uh, since 1960. Uh, 45, 27, it was dominant when uh, obviously USC is uh, struggling to figure out who they are without uh, their head coach, Clay Helton, and, and uh, some quarterback issues there, but still a very impressive win for this Oregon State team who has now scored over 40 points in three straight games and is you know leading the the conference in total offense and uh and and points per game so you know i think last year mark obviously uh, washington narrowly beat uh oregon state oregon state you know beat uh beat oregon so they were a good team last year and uh the the, the main offensive uh, you know, threat for that team last year was, of course, Jamar Jefferson, who ran for 133 yards and a touchdown against Washington. And I think we all kind of talked about this during the offseason and before the season began that, hey, you know, Jamar Jefferson was a fantastic player and they're not going to have Jamar Jefferson this year. So they're probably not going to be as good on offense or at least in rushing the ball as they were last year well i think that what we can see now is that this is about much more than jamar jefferson it's about more than bj baylor it's about more than chance nolan this is about jonathan smith and the offensive uh program game plan that they have 
been building over the last three years. And I think now it's starting to really gain momentum and bear fruit that uh, Jonathan Smith should be getting some you know, respect nationally now as one of the best offensive-minded head coaches in the country. He's proven that he could do it as a college quarterback for the Oregon State Beavers. And now he's starting to prove that he can do it as a head coach. And so I think Washington fans should be very nervous going into this game, not only because of what Oregon State has already proven that they can do against other opponents, but because of the fact that Jonathan Smith knows Jimmy Lake and his tendencies better than probably any other coach in the conference. And uh, there's no doubt about it. Jonathan Smith wants to win this game and he's got something cooked up that he's going to bring to the table on Saturday night. It will be a fascinating watch. I think, I mean, it's a, it's a really critical game in the PAC 12 North, the way things have set up with Oregon playing Stanford and Washington playing Oregon state, those feel like the four best teams in the PAC 12 North. So it kind of has almost like, it's like a division semifinal. Like, you know, it's like the, the winners of those two games are going to be in a significantly better position than, than the losers of those two games kind of in competing for the division title. And um, I think for both, you know, not to make this Oregon centric, but if we think of Oregon as kind of the favorite to win the North, I yeah. personally don't think Oregon is going to run the table here on out. I think they're going to stumble at least once along the way. And so I do think that the winner of the Oregon state Washington game if they can string a couple wins together could have the potential whenever they play Oregon for that game to have some divisional implications. But I think it's, it, that's only going to be the case for the winner of this game. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, uh, I, I think that there's a very good likelihood in this PAC 12 North division that you're going to have just the classic, um, you know, kind of, revolving domino type of effect where you know Oregon State beats Washington Washington beats Oregon Oregon beats Oregon State you know throw Stanford into the mix there somewhere and uh you know something like that could I could see easily happening where uh, every game is kind of a this domino effect of uh one team knocking down or knocking out the other um but yeah let's uh you know i think it's going to be a, a tough game for the huskies if this is an opportunity i think they're they're obviously uh well i don't know if you know this but the uh the line has shifted over the course of the week i think um you know like right after the game on saturday washington was slightly favored now oregon state is favored which i believe they should be at home especially um, and what they've done on the field. But this is an opportunity, I think, for the Huskies to outplay their expectation. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't, I can't remember the last time that the Huskies outplayed their expectation where they were coming up against a team that was favored against them and uh, they did better than what people were expecting them to do. And so I think, for Jimmy Lake, 
this is this is an important game for him to really um you know see what his coaching chops really can do against a, a team that is firing on all cylinders right now well and a critical point in the schedule too because then you've got ucla at home coming right after that so it's like this is not a a an easy stretch. I think home against Cal was kind of a nice way to ease into conference play, but now it, it gets real in a hurry with the Beavers red hot and then UCLA, you know, one of the best teams in the conference coming up the following week. Or no I, doubt. I guess you got them after a bye. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it's no secret that the Huskies have struggled immensely in stopping the run and uh, Oregon state, is going to run the ball right down the middle. UCLA is going to run the ball. Um, and so they're going to have to really bow up or they're going to be bowing out pretty, pretty quick. But let's, uh, let's turn, turn uh, to duck news. Um, so, so what's, what's your take on that uh, Oregon Arizona game? Was it just kind of a, you know, a, a cleanse the palate and, and move on type of a deal or, uh, is there anything from that third quarter that causes any lingering concern for you? You know, the th third quarter uh, was really what tripped them up against Fresno, too. Um, I think there was like about an 18-minute stretch in that Fresno game um, that if you just isolated that, Fresno dominated. And if you took that away, Oregon dominated. And this was very similar. Oregon, uh, I think, led 24-7 at the half. And they outscored him 17 to nothing in the fourth fourth quarter. So if you throw those three quarters together, that's a 41 to seven advantage. And, yeah. and that's about what you would expect from, you know, the best team in the conference against a winless team. Uh, and yet it was that third quarter where Arizona dominated time of possession and they got a couple scores. They got a safety. Uh, they got a touchdown a field goal and a safety. So uh, I don't put a whole lot of, um, concern on it in terms of like oh this is like this lingering thing this third quarter problem is you know um is going to be with them all season especially since they played such great third quarter against uh ohio state but it is just kind of puzzling i think the thing that i like about it is mario cristobal actually mentioned it in his press conference he said basically we emphasize getting off to a quick start we emphasize dominating the fourth quarter we've done those things but we have this like gap where our, our intensity level seems to drop and, and we're not kind of maintaining, you know, that throughout the game. And so uh, he said, you know, you excel at the things that you emphasize. And so we're going to be emphasizing that. And so I'm going to be curious the next few games to mm -hmm. see, you know, is this a team now that it's happened a couple different times in significant games, is this a team that, um, that can put together a little more of a four quarter uh, effort, which is what you want to see. But overall, if you're winning your conference opener by 22 points, you're finishing September unbeaten. Uh, I think you have to count that as a, as a win. Yeah. So, so Mark, um, you know, since this is, this is the dog and duck show, you know, as I'm watching Twitter, kind of one of the big things that came out of the game, at least on Twitter was a little episode of Cristobal berating one of the players after some sort of a bonehead play. From what I can gather, um, he was just a coach, you know, that was upset 
and you know making sure that that young man understood that that kind of you know showboating or whatever you want to call it was not acceptable uh but you know uh once things get out there in public and people start everybody starts putting their opinion on it um all kinds of accusations and comments and uh you know blowback can come what's your take on that uh you know as as a fan if um you know if that were your son out there you know would you have any problem with with what cristobal did yeah it's interesting um i think if you were to watch uh like nick saban on a sideline he probably has that kind of explosion every quarter you know i mean he is he is frequently seen just losing his mind ripping his headset off like yeah um and so for a coach like nick saban it seems like everybody kind of understands that it's part of the deal and and if you have misgivings about that you probably just shouldn't go there or you know be a part of it but 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 alabama fans seem to have just kind of accepted that that's that's part of what makes Nick Saban the best coach in the country. Um, with with Mario Cristobal, uh, that is not his norm. His norm is that he's pretty calm and cool and collected on the sideline. He's a motivator. He's high energy in his mm. enthusiasm, but he is rarely seen um, berating a player like that. And so, uh, so I think there's a couple things to consider. One is. Um, is it that uh, that he is so kind of in his in the in the deepest part of his soul, like he is so opposed to a player getting an unsportsmanlike conduct for taunting a, an opposing player that ruins a scoring drive and all of that? That 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 is to him, it's like the cardinal sin on the football field, and so his explosion came from a place of trying to send a message to everyone else that that sort of thing is unacceptable that's, I guess, giving Mario the benefit of the doubt and saying that like, Hey, he's, he's sending a message to the rest of the team. He's holding them accountable. You know, Chris Hudson, the player involved to his credit, just looked at Mario and nodded his head and uh, looked him in the eye. And um, so there's some, there are some that are kind of taking that tack. I, I tend to take a little different tack just in the sense of, I think if you as a coach lose your composure on the sideline, you lose the right to criticize your players for losing their composure. This was always a problem I had with Bobby Knight, you know, the famous uh, general, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. when he's rolling a chair across the floor and getting thrown out of a game. Um, and then how, how can you then, you know, get on your team for doing something that's costing them in the game. And so I would have, I would have, I had no problem with him being upset at the penalty and trying to send a strong message to the player and to the rest of the team about it. I think maybe going into halftime, that was the better time to do that rather than on national TV, where now you've kind of put this kid in this awkward position where um, he's kind of the center of this, this story. So, um, so I wouldn't say that I, I don't think it's a great look for Mario at the same time. I don't think it's a controversial thing. I, I don't think it's like, right out of the bounds of, of what, you know, a typical coach might do. Like I said, if it's Nick Saban, this wouldn't be a story because he does it all the time. I think it's only because it seemed a little out of character for Mario that it kind of um, blew up into, into something more. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, I think, 
I think it was kind of overblown. And um, I think part of what at least, um, you know, fueled the fire on Twitter was uh, Rod Gilmore, who was calling the game, yeah. um, kind of gave it some racial undertones as if that had something to do with it. And I thought, I thought that was totally uncalled for um, by him. Uh, but, you know, I was curious on your take because I didn't really fully know the context. And, you know, I, I don't know a lot whether or not that's, like you said, like that doesn't fit his normal MO. Uh, but let's go ahead and we'll move on this weekend. Uh, Oregon's facing a Stanford team that uh, is coming off uh, against a 35-24 loss to this resurgent UCLA team. And I think, Mark, one of the things that really is so unique to me about um, you know the, this 2-2 two and two Stanford Cardinal, and we, we saw this trend begin to take place over the last couple of years, is that uh, this is not your typical – Jim Harbaugh, early David Shaw, Stanford, where they've got all these bigs and they're running the ball. Uh, this Stanford, uh, you know, they against UCLA, they they pass for 293 yards, three touchdowns, and their leading rusher was their quarterback who rushed for 42 yards. Um, so, what do you make of this uh, game against uh, Stanford? And is this is this the kind of game that that Oregon might trip up on, or do, does that offense really kind of play into Oregon's strengths? So I think there's there's two ways of looking at it. I think you can look at it through the lens of like this this year's teams and on paper kind of who has the advantage. And I think Oregon has the advantage. I think um, the things that Stanford has been vulnerable to are things that Oregon should be able to, to take advantage of and um and so if you're just looking through it through the lens of trying to handicap the game i think you know you would feel pretty good about oregon's chances i think um with with all these schools especially when you get into conference play i don't know if you do this warren but i i have a hard time separating like my personal history with the schools involved and how it's evolved over time and so like oregon's history with stanford is rough like I can think off the top of my head, I could name you five different losses to Stanford that were like cataclysmic gut punch losses. In in a couple of cases, the only loss that Oregon had all season was at the hands of Stanford. And not all of those Stanford teams were like the epic Stanford teams that we kind of think of. Oregon actually did pretty well when it was like Andrew Luck was there. But but you know, then sometimes they would lose to a Stanford team that they really had no business losing to and so for whatever reason uh it's like anytime one of the Oregon schools goes down to the desert to play at Arizona or Arizona State I kind of been holding my breath a little bit because it just seems like on the road in the desert weird things happen that's right I feel the same way about just the Oregon Stanford series I feel like that is the school more than any other that has kind of foiled Oregon's best seasons um time and time again and so uh, that just has me kind of amped for it as like, this is a big game. It's a, it's going to be a 1230 game on ABC. Pump for it, which I don't think in any way that it's, it's in the bag. I think, um, you know, Stanford is good enough. I mean, 
Stanford blew out USC, and they had the game with UCLA tied, I believe, in the fourth quarter. Mm -hmm. And so just just on those two data points alone, this is a team capable of playing with and beating Oregon when they have things going right. The quarterback that they have playing now is much better than the quarterback they started the season with, apparently. Mm. And so uh, I think I think it'll be a competitive, hard-fought game that uh, that the Ducks are going to have to they're going to have to play better than they did at times in the Arizona game uh, to prevail. Yeah, and you know it's it's an interesting thing because um, you typically think about. Uh, going into hostile environments and how difficult it is to play there. And yet what seems to be almost equally difficult is going into the farm where there's just no energy at all. It's, you know, very similar to playing in a COVID year where there's no fans in the stadium and you've got to create your own energy. And I know that that has, I think, contributed to some of the Huskies disappointing losses uh, out there as well. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if, like you said, Mario being a motivator, being an enthusiastic guy, can he get his team up and ready for that and keep that energy sustained throughout the game? Well, let's uh, let's do a little bit of a roundup on the Pac-12. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, the Bruins rebounded uh, after their devastating loss to Fresno State with a, a pretty good convincing win against the aforementioned St Stanford team. Uh, the Sun Devils also won convincingly against a Colorado team that honestly just has me scratching my head how they were able to stay so close against AM, who we'll talk about maybe in a couple minutes. But uh, Mark, what, what stood out to you uh, about, uh, about those two games and um, what you know, what from the Pac-12 this past weekend really uh, made, your, made your raise your eyebrows a little bit. Well, you know, we, we talked about uh, that these two games, Oregon and Washington, are in are, are really key games for the Pac-12 North. Well, similarly, UCLA and Arizona State play this week in what I'm kind of viewing as the, the Pac-12 South championship in some ways. Like, I mean, I know it's really early and a lot of things can happen, and I'm sure, you know, Utah fans, are thinking they, their their team is going to factor into this, but the way USC has started, the way Colorado and Arizona look, it does really feel like uh, UCLA or Arizona State, whoever wins this game, is going to be in the driver's seat to win that division, and so that's going to be a really interesting game to watch. And um, you know, both of them looked good. Uh, obviously, UCLA was playing a better team, so you put a little more stock into that, but. Uh, but I, I think it's a bit of a toss-up this weekend. I could see either team prevailing in that and, and kind of becoming the, the leader in the South for the rest of the way. Yeah, agreed. I, I don't know what to make out of the Arizona State team. You know, they, they look good one week. They, they look really vulnerable the next week. Uh, you know, I, I, would, I would definitely favor UCLA heavily. Um, in this game, but, um, you know, like you said, um, uh, whoever comes out of this game victorious has got the, got the inside track to taking that uh, Pac-12 South. 
I do think the fact that it's it's at uh, the Rose Bowl um, should should make it a a pretty uh, strong likelihood that UCLA will come out on top, and that'll have UCLA coming in to Washington next week, four and one, and probably ranked in the top fifteen or so in the nation. So that that'll be a, another daunting opponent for for UW. Uh, Mark. Any thoughts about uh, Washington State once again losing after building a, a first half lead against this Utah team that really was reeling? And uh, man, all of a sudden it felt like a get right game for 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 Utah. Yeah, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be so quick to dismiss Utah in the South. I think I um, they've underachieved a little bit to to start the year and uh, don't seem to be as formidable. Uh, but sometimes a team can just can piece together a few wins like this that that aren't pretty, but it kind of buys them some time to, to figure themselves out. I know they're working in a new quarterback now and, and had that whole situation. So I think with Washington State, it feels like an especially chaotic year. I think kind of the Cougs, um, in the Mike Leach era seemed like they were pretty consistently going to win seven to nine games. Like every year you could kind of count on them to be competitive. I think of the Cougs historically are like a three and nine or four and eight team, but that some every year in Pullman, they're going to get somebody that, that probably shouldn't have lost to them. Just, they're gonna, you know, uh, I don't necessarily look at this year's Washington state team with that kind of, um, you know, concern. Maybe I should. Maybe maybe the Ducks will be the team that they they surprise. But uh, but it, it just seems like they're a little bit chaotic and uh, yeah, it yeah it it doesn't seem like a house that's been aligned. And so I think if you're, you know, if you're handicapping the Pac-12 as a whole, Arizona is the winless team that hasn't won in over 700 games. But like Arizona's competing. Arizona's Arizona played BYU tough. Arizona played Oregon tough for right. three quarters. I think I feel better about the trajectory of Arizona's program than like Washington state or, or even Colorado right now, those two programs kind of seem like they're in a bit of a tailspin. Uh, whereas I think Arizona could surprise, surprise some people in the second half of the year. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what I think about Arizona just yet, but I do think you're right that Washington state is a team that is really struggling to figure out their identity. You know, when when they were, you know, under Mike Leach, you love it or hate it, uh, they had kind of an us against the world mentality. Um, they knew what their offensive identity was and they executed it very well and pulled off some pretty big upsets. And on a for for several years, the Apple Cup game was a game deciding who was going to go to the Pac-12 championship. And, right. uh, you know, fortunately for dog fans, Jimmy Lake had uh, Mike Leach's number when it came to solving the riddle of that air raid offense. But this team doesn't seem to really scare anybody. It doesn't have really any, um, any playmakers that are, you know, really uh, lighting up the Pac-12. And um, there just doesn't seem to be any sense of, of uh, identity or momentum behind that identity. So I would not be surprised, in fact, 
with some of the other um, issues, swar you know, swar uh, swarming around uh, Nick Rolovich. I would not be surprised if he's gone by the end of this year if uh, he can't turn this thing around quicker rather than 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 later. Well, um, looking at the AP top twenty-five, uh, of course, um, most of the favorites trounced their opponents as we would expect, uh, but there were a couple of upsets: Arkansas uh, upsetting. Texas A&M in a game that I think a lot of people thought that that could happen based on what they had actually seen from those two teams over the last couple of weeks. And then the big one being NC State upsetting Clemson uh, in overtime and uh, really, I think, exposing this Clemson offense as being just light years away from where they were under Trevor Lawrence. Uh, so yeah, Mark, any any thoughts about those games and um, you know what stood out from you? You know, maybe share some thoughts that you you put into your Mark's moment uh, top twenty five review. Well, you know, if we just kind of look at the bigger picture, Warren, the last few years we have had offenses just going out of control uh, and records being broken. If you look at the pass efficiency record holders uh baker mayfield sets a record it's broken the next year by kyler murray and tua tagovailoa it's broken the next year by joe burrow it's broken the next year by mac jones um all of these guys quarterbacks of national title winning teams or playoff teams and it was just kind of this like one upsmanship of the next quarterback is even better than the one in the past and now we're we're kind of in this reversal where Clemson is struggling to score against NC State or against Georgia Tech. Uh, Oklahoma won a game 16 to 13 against West Virginia. They struggled the week before against Nebraska. They don't have the dynamic offense that we're used to seeing from them. Um, there's, there's Texas A&M is another one that you mentioned. Their offense has been dreadful this season. And I, I don't think that loss to Arkansas is going to be seen as an oddity as the season goes on. I think Texas A&M is going to have a real rough time in their SEC schedule because that offense just is so abysmal. And so I don't know if, if we just had this golden age of quarterbacks that has now moved on and we're kind of in a, in a lull, uh, but it, it doesn't seem like around the country there is the same caliber of players at that position, at least with the major powers. Uh, they seem to be spread out through other teams. And so as a result, I think it's going to make the season much more wide open. I have no idea who's going to win the ACC. I have no idea who's going to win the big 12. I have no idea who's going to win the big 10. Uh, you know, I still think it's probably Alabama and Georgia that are the two best teams in the country. Yeah. But I think who's going to join them in the playoff. You could talk me into 15 or 20 teams right now. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, I, I don't want to, to my own horn on this, but I, I kind of had a feeling that this was a year that there was going to be some regression amongst some of the college football superpowers and that it was the, the perfect opportunity for the door to fling open for some other teams, like, for instance, in Oregon to, to crash the party and uh, to, to, to crack the top four, which they've done thus far. Um, 
because I mean, when you looked at it, you just saw some of the best players from uh, from Ohio State and and Oklahoma and uh, Alabama and and um, uh, who am I missing? Uh, and Clemson and Clemson and you know. It, for those teams to just be able to regularly reload and continue to put up the kind of historic numbers that you mentioned, it's, you know, at some point there's going to be a blip, right? Yeah. And maybe this is just a blip in, you know, five games from now, DJ Ungalange or however you pronounce his last name, uh, you know, he's putting up 400 yards passing per game and the NC State game is ancient history. More likely, it'll be next year that they kind of, you know, get back to some of that offensive, you know, prowess that they had. Um, but the other thing, too, is that as we discussed, we've discussed ad nauseum over the, the, um, the offseason, is the fact that so many teams had so many returning starters coming back this season. And I think that that has contributed in that um, other teams are stronger. Their defenses are more prepared that all the guys on the, on the team have seen this already and they know what to expect. And I think that that's maybe leveling the playing field a little bit especially against some of those superpowers that their best players left, whereas maybe more of the mid-level teams retained all of their players. And as a result, they were able to even things out a little bit in this unique kind of bounce back season from, uh, from, you know, the 2020 year. So I think it's an interesting thing. Uh, Not sure what to make. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this Notre Dame team, which, has looked fairly uh, anemic uh, up until their impressive uh, defeat of Wisconsin this week. But now they're potentially on their second or third quarterback. Uh, They don't know when their starter is going to be back. And, um, you know, they're they're coming up against uh, Cincinnati this weekend. What's your thoughts about this Notre Dame team? And are they on the upswing or... Uh, are they vulnerable? I So I put them pretty high this week based on the fact that they beat Wisconsin by 28 and they're undefeated and, and all of that. I, but I think it's smoke and mirrors. I don't think they're going to stay that way. Uh, their offensive line is really struggling. They rushed the ball for nine yards against Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin's defense is top tier legit. I don't know how you run the ball for nine yards and win a game by 28 but they had a kick return for a touchdown. They had two interception returns for touchdowns. So that feels to me unsustainable. Like that's, they didn't, they didn't uh, whip Wisconsin. They, you know, um, they benefited. Anyone non-offensive points per game is not a a recipe for success. Exactly. Exactly. So I think, uh, I think they're, they're playing a really, really sound Cincinnati team. Mm-hmm. but uh, I would favor going into this matchup. I think um, Cincinnati just should be better. And, uh, and it would, it would surprise me if Notre Dame, if we're still talking about an undefeated Notre Dame next week. All right. So you're, you're picking a Cincinnati uh, win over Notre yeah. Dame. Yeah. I'm saying Cincinnati. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll circle back on that next week. Uh, before we wrap up, and we do need to wrap things up, uh, we would be remiss, Mark, if we did not at least mention our Seattle Mariners. And uh, Mark, if you remember, uh, earlier this season, we we titled one of our podcasts, How Bad Are the Seattle Mariners? Only then to uh, have another podcast a couple of weeks later with the title, How Good are these Seattle Mariners. And wow, what a tremendous story they have become as now they find themselves a half a game back with four games remaining and uh, they've won nine out of their last 10 games. Is the magic going to continue? And uh, are we gonna be looking at the first uh, Seattle Mariners, Mariners playoff team in uh, my son's lifetime? It's it's amazing right now how how they're uh, you know you want to talk about smoke and mirrors they're get this Seattle's run differential for the season is negative fifty they've been outscored by fifty runs on the season the Toronto Blue Jays who they're competing with was one of the teams they're competing with have outscored teams by hundred and sixty seven runs so the yeah. Mariners are minus fifty the Blue Jays are plus one sixty seven. And yet here they are, they're neck and neck for that final spot along with the Red Sox. Um, which who, which that means that means that like the Mariners have to be leading all of Major League Baseball in one run wins. And right? they are, they are. And that's that's how they've done it, is they're they're pulling games out, um, kind of despite what all of the sabermetricians say they should be doing. So that's that's a really fun story. It'll it would be really, really fun to see them somehow uh climb their way in even if it's to one a one game playoff with with toronto or boston or somebody so um this this next weekend you know they're they're on a hot streak they've won nine of their last 10 and uh hopefully they can they can keep it going long enough to to find themselves in some postseason play it would be fun to keep cheering this team on absolutely and uh wow what a what a tremendous story that would be and you know i i I don't want to be a pessimist, but I heard or I saw Dave Mahler on Twitter say something about how next year, you know, they're going to be even better and they're they're going to be favored to get to the playoffs. And I'm thinking to myself exactly what you just said. With all of the miraculous wins that they've accrued this year, you know, to assume that they're going to be able to do that again next year, uh, man, I feel like this is a now or never kind of a deal. We're not guaranteed that this is going to be a playoff team come next year. There's a very strong likelihood in my pessimistic perspective that there could be as much of like a 15 game regression next year. Um, if, you know, the magic somehow disappears and they kind of start playing to the, the talent and the run differential that you mentioned, so, man, let's go, Ams. Let's get into the playoffs. Let's ride this magic carpet for as long as we can because we don't know how long it's going to last. Um, so uh, we'll wrap it up with that. Mark, uh, thank you for joining me on the show, of course. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please continue to rate, subscribe, share, and listen to the podcast. Mark, any final thoughts before we wrap up? 
Just excited about uh, Oregon Stanford this week. Like I said, 1230 ABC, you know where I'll be. I do. I do. Absolutely. And um, yeah, you know, if, uh, if, if it turns out that somehow Oregon were to lose and Washington were to lose, uh, you know, we might have to change the name to the, the dog, duck and beaver show. So we'll, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll figure that out. But uh, no, hey, for thanks for everybody for listening. And with that, I'll say go dogs and go ducks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>